Hi, this is Mimi, and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Emily Murray, who is a registered dietitian located in the Nashville area. I'm so excited to have you on. Hi, Emily. Hey, Mimi. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm so glad you could come. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Yeah, so that's really open-ended, so I'll try to keep it (laughs) So I am a registered dietitian in the Nashville area, um, also known as a nutritionist, I guess, registered dietitian nutritionist, if your viewers are more familiar with that nutritionist term. So I help people really just heal their relationship with food. That's a lot of what I like to do at work in my free time. I like to hang out with my husband, friends, family, and my pup, and I like to read and write and spend some time outside too. That's so awesome. Um, For the listeners, I've known Emily the longest of all my podcast guests this far, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, She taught me so much of what I know about eating disorders and intuitive eating, and I have not forgotten when she came to my nutrition class my freshman year of undergraduate and introduced me to the work that I get to do now. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. Um, thinking about eating disorder recovery, let's just jump right in. Um, who is involved in that process? Yeah, so, you know, everyone's recovery can look a little bit differently. Um, so just depending on the person and what they have access to and what um, just what season of life they're in and all of that stuff, you know, best practice for treating eating disorders is really that multidisciplinary team. So, Having a therapist, a dietitian, a medical physician for that sort of monitoring, sometimes a psychiatrist. You know, some people also benefit from working with a recovery coach. Families and friends can be really, really helpful. It truly does take a village to treat eating disorders and to recover. So, you know, it can involve a lot of different different groups of people, I would say the most common is definitely the dietitian therapist and medical physician. Mm, That makes sense. I like that you mentioned family members and, um, you know, just kind of more non-traditional parts of the team that we don't always think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And what role do you play as a dietitian specifically in treating eating disorders? Yeah, so my role is nutrition rehabilitation. So making sure that clients are getting enough to eat, um, eating consistently throughout the day, getting in variety, um, not having any foods that they are avoiding, you know, out of fear or apprehension, and also really helping clients to rely less and less on those eating disorder behaviors. So restricting, binging, purging, compensatory exercise, any of those things. um, I also help clients to work to decrease some of those things as well. So, you know, I definitely go through a lot of the food stuff with my clients. That's my role. We do meal planning. We talk about, you know, different foods and why we need them, um, why all foods can really fit into a healthy diet. And I do a lot of exploring of thoughts and emotions that are coming up about the food, because that so often contributes to the eating disorder behaviors or disordered eating behaviors or chronic dieting behaviors, any of those behaviors that are really problematic. You know, a lot of times they're driven by 
um, you know, either distorted thoughts or emotions that the client doesn't feel super comfortable feeling, you know, it's a number of different things. So that's, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what I do. So nutrition rehabilitation, really working to cut down on those eating disorder behaviors and hopefully eventually not having to use those at all. And then also making sure that a person's diet has variety, um, that it's enough, that it's adequate and that it's joyful and fun and flexible and allows them to go just live their life. And so that food is a part of their life, but it's not their whole life. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I really like the illustration of um, food taking up, you know, maybe like 10% of your thoughts rather than like 80% of the thoughts would be awesome. Oh my gosh. Yes. And it is so common for my clients to, yeah, for food to take up that much of their thoughts. They're dreaming about food. They're daydreaming about food. They're preoccupied with Mm. food. A lot of times it's just because, you know, restriction does that, you know, whether you struggle with, you know, anorexia or OSFED or bulimia or binge eating, most people um, have that restrictive component in their eating disorder. And that can definitely contribute to some of that preoccupation for sure. Absolutely. It makes sense that when we try not to think about something, then we think about it more because we have to hold that in our brains of like what we're not supposed to be thinking about, um, which is really interesting and ties into both OCD and eating disorders, which is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that. And I think, you know, one thing that I would add too is that biologically, you know, some people will lose their hunger signals. They'll be like, I never feel hungry in my stomach. I don't, you know, I'm not hungry in the morning or I don't feel hunger or hunger fullness or whatever throughout the day. And yet they're constantly thinking about food and that can actually be biologically, you know, a very adaptive thing. You know, it's forcing us to think about food if we are underfed, which is actually, you know, a very healthy thing, you know, to go out and seek out and get the food if we aren't getting enough of that. So it's interesting that a sign of hunger can actually be that preoccupation. It's just fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And thinking about the lens through which you work um, in in terms of weight inclusivity and weight neutrality, um, can you explain what that looks like and maybe if there's a difference between weight neutral and weight inclusive? Yeah. So in terms of, yeah, the, the lens that I practice from, so I would, you know, definitely call that weight inclusive. So in any sort of like weight inclusive or health at every size type of lens, really the premise of that is that, you know, a person's, health status or their nutrition status or their eating disorder status or whatever, um, that is not determined by their weight, you know? So it's really looking at a person apart from their weight. And yeah, there's people who are at lower weights that are healthy or unhealthy. There's people, you know, in kind of the middle range that are healthy and unhealthy and the same with the higher weight. So, you know, really just acknowledging that weight is not directly correlated with health at all. It's not correlated with worth, you know, really at all. Um, And that, you know, we can pursue healthy behavior change, you know, regardless, regardless of weight, right? We can make changes in our diet that's not dieting, but it's just making, you know, healthy lifestyle changes that are 
in align with our values. And so really just treating the whole person and not, you know, not stigmatizing, you know, a person because of their weight, which is unfortunately so, um, so, so common in doctor's offices and really with dietitians too, you know, dietitians that aren't kind of weight inclusive and practice with that non, non um, diet approach in terms of like the difference between weight inclusive and weight neutral. I haven't really thought a whole lot about that to be, to be honest. Um, in terms of weight with my clients. So a lot of times I will not even weigh my clients. I'll just, you know, kind of at our initial session, I'll just say, Hey, kind of where's your, you know, weight naturally been, has there been any fluctuations or changes? And for a lot of clients, you know, I don't, I don't even really have to continue weighing them. If they're using, you know, eating disorder behaviors, particularly restrictive ones, I, you know, I will want to weigh them just to monitor that as that can sometimes, you know, be one indicator of certain eating patterns. But overall, yeah, if we're weight neutral, we are just not putting, putting a lot of stock in weight, right? We're just neutral. We're, you know, like weight is not good or bad. It just, it just is what it is. And that, that is so, you know, contrary to, the traditional medical model, weight-centric healthcare, and really just the culture that we live in. Wow, that was really an excellent answer. (laughs) Thank you for answering that question. Um, I'm curious to switching gears a little bit about recovery um, in that process. Um, Why are friendships so important and what traits in friendships are helpful to recovery? Because I think you and I both know that friendship and support are key to this process, um, but yeah. Mm, I love this question. Yeah. I think friendships are so important for recovery because eating disorders are really disorders of disconnection and isolation. And mm. so friendships can be such a, you know, a beautiful piece of that recovery when the eating disorder might have, you know, it's probably isolated the person um, who is suffering, whether it's shame about the behaviors or just inability to, you know, go out and engage in a social setting where there's food, you know, there's so much disconnection and isolation. And so, yeah, really a lot of, for a lot of people in their recovery, you have to like relearn how to do friendships. It's like, wait a second, Mm. how do I do friendships? Like how how does it work to be in a relationship with another human being when I'm so used to just being in a relationship with my eating disorder? And that work is so hard and beautiful at the same time in terms of friends that can be really helpful i think that you know obviously it can be really helpful if you're in recovery to have friends who are also in recovery you know who mm-hmm. who maybe just get it you know they get the whole process they get that it's hard they get what it's like to have you know thoughts in their brains that don't make sense and yet they know you know, they're feeling all the feels and all of that stuff. That can be really helpful. Um, sometimes that can be hard too, because sometimes eating disorders can get competitive and try to compare and things like that. So if you have friends in recovery and you're in recovery, I would just, you know, caution against that. Um, it can be a wonderful, amazing thing. And you also have to have really firm boundaries, you know, around taking care of yourself and, you know, making sure that you're always putting your recovery first. And 
all of that stuff. And then I think another type of friendship that can be really, really helpful, and it's rare because diet culture has messed with so many people's, you know, food attitudes and belief systems around food. But if you have, you know, friends who just seem to be really intuitive with food, for whatever reason, they didn't get sucked <laughs> into, you know, the diet culture vortex, you know, those friends who are willing and able to go get pizza with you or to do a socially distanced picnic or a FaceTime meal or something like that. And they're just really, you know, natural with food, or maybe they've been in recovery, but they've really made it out onto the other side and they're now intuitive eaters. I think, you know, that can be so, so helpful as well. And then I think, you know, for me, just thinking about uh, my own process of like developing friendships, um, as an adult, I think one, another, so this is like a lot of different types, another type of friend <laughs> that I think is good is just, you know, it can be helpful to have friends who model really appropriate boundaries, you know, and so that everything is really, um, yeah, just clear cut in terms of the relationship and expectations that can be really helpful. Um, I have friends who are kind of like fun friends. So we always have tons of fun together when we <laughs> hang out, we do fun activities. You know, maybe those relationships aren't as deep as some of my others and that's okay. You know, there's, there's room for different types of friends. And then I have some friends who just have really, really strong um, emotional bonds with, and those, those are really great as well. So hope that answered a little bit of the question about friendship. <laughs> Yes, that was an excellent answer. So thank you. Um, I'm curious too, speaking of the different types of friends, um, how can friends who maybe don't know much about eating disorders support their friends with eating disorders? And what are maybe some examples of things to not say and things that might be more helpful? Oh, yeah, that is such a great question. So I think if you're listening and you're a friend of someone who, you know, suffers from an eating disorder or disordered eating, just really asking them like, hey, what's helpful for me, to, you know, what's helpful for you, um, for me to do, you know, is it helpful when I do X, Y, Z, or is it unhelpful? Is there anything that I can do to help you out in this process? Because everyone's going to be a little bit different. Some people really like direct feedback from their friends. Others are like, oh my gosh, if you give me direct feedback, I'm going to kill you. Don't do that. So it really depends on the person. So really just asking your friend or your loved one, you know, what, what they need in terms of just common sense, like say, and don't say, um, do not talk about any sort of diet that you're on. That can be really triggering. Do not talk about really just depends on the person, but talking about exercise can be really triggering for some people like, Oh, I just ran X, Y, Z miles and I'm so sore and blah, you know, that can be really difficult because, you know, your friend might need to take a break from exercise or they might've had a really destructive relationship with that. So just, you know, being sensitive, if you know that, um, if you know that the person that you are trying to support might be more sensitive to those things, not talking about that, not commenting on the person's weight at all, even comments like, wow, you look so healthy. You know, that can be really triggering for people. Yeah, maybe they are a lot healthier and they're, 
they're really trying their best in recovery, but sometimes the eating disorder might take that and twist it into, oh my gosh, she's noticed I've gained weight, blah, 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 and kind of go down a rabbit hole. So I think, you know, asking the person specifically what's helpful for them and really just trying to avoid any sort of weight, body talk and knowing really asking and then just knowing, you know, in advance, does this person like talking about their eating disorder? Some people are like, when I hang out with you, I just want to think about what we're doing and try to be in the present moment. I don't want to talk about my eating disorder at all. And others are like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I need to talk about the eating disorder. So really just, you know, having that open dialogue, I think can be really helpful. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, you know, there are general things that we can avoid saying, like you talked about, but then there's, you know, the specifics of the individual and thinking about what's helpful for them, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what is the overall process um, of recovering from an eating disorder? I imagine it looks different from everybody, for, for everybody, um, but I'm curious, like, where does recovery begin? Where do we start? Um, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, end up not going to see a therapist or a dietitian until there's something pretty wrong, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's really, really unfortunate. Um, I think a part of that is, you know, it there's a cost in going to see a therapist or a dietitian. It costs your time. It costs money. Um, Some people might be embarrassed, you know, because of the stigma around all of that. And so, you know, a lot of people, their journey might start, you know, with just thinking about, you know, those things like, you know, could I maybe benefit from, you know, working with a therapist or a dietitian? How is my relationship with food? Like, does everyone think about food this way? Does everyone do these sorts of behaviors? Um, you know, if you're younger, like if you're a teenager, sometimes your journey will start with your parents bringing you to an appointment. Um, and those maybe aren't always as fun, but, um, yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of people think about it for a long time before they actually schedule. I really do believe that, um, you know, a lot of people aren't just going to be like, Oh, I have a problem. And then just, you know, go straight to the appointment. Um, and then, you know, I think it, You know, some people kind of get that multidisciplinary team right away. Others kind of work for work with a therapist for a few weeks and then kind of add in the nutrition piece or vice versa. Um, A lot of times a dietitian or a doctor or a physical therapist or um, someone might actually be able to detect kind of an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors and say like, oh, I think I might need to refer and then we'll refer to a therapist. Um, So that's kind of logistically how it might start for some people. I know other people might be listening and be like, that's nothing like my journey. I'm sure not. You know, everyone has a different journey for sure. And um, I think in terms of the process of recovery, oh my goodness, wow, what a hard (laughs) journey. You know, it is so, so hard. And I just want to validate that, you know, if you have anyone listening who's going through the eating disorder recovery journey, OCD recovery, like, God, it's all so, so hard to kind of where you, when you're in a place where you know that kind of how you're thinking about food or, you know, maybe for OCD, you know, you're having 
you know, certain obsessive thoughts and you know that those things, you know, maybe are irrational or not true or whatever. And yet it's still so debilitating. Um, and that recovery process is just so, so taxing and hard. Um, but what's involved in that um, and what that looks like for a lot of, you know, eating disorder recovery, it is that nutrition rehabilitation piece. So making sure that we are getting enough food to eat adequacy variety, you know, really working on decreasing those behaviors. And then, you know, once a person is more stable in that area, of course they can work with a therapist to help, you know, meet some of those goals and work on other stuff while they're doing that. But I see a lot of times that a person can really, really get into the nitty gritty heart and soul work once they really have that solid nutrition foundation, because, um, you know, their, their brains are more able to tap into emotion regulation resources, right? Because if we have a brain that's um, being restricted or foods being, you know, binged or purged or whatever, you know, that brain is not going to be adequately resourced to um, help with emotion regulation, which is so, so needed in terms of processing all the stuff that might be contributing to the eating disorder in the first place. So um, I think a lot of times, you know, the nutrition piece can be really helpful in terms of therapy and being able to process what needs to be processed. You know, for a lot of people, trauma work might be involved. Um, For others, you know, maybe they need to do some specific OCD work and they need to go do, you know, ERP and work on some of that as it pops up more. Others will see, you know, some of their depression come up or um, things like that, or others might benefit from DBT. And, you know, so there's so many different routes um, that a person can go. You know, some people, you know, will go, you know, outpatient and get, you know, get their feet on pretty solid ground and be okay and be able to kind of live a recovered life from that standpoint and others you know, might need a higher level of care and that's totally okay too. So this is, it's really, this is not answering the question, but it's really <laughs> such a, you know, it's such an individualized um, process for so many people and it involves um, putting into action, you know, what you know needs to be done. So in terms of, you know, the food piece or, you know, maybe anxiety exposures or things like that putting those things into action, um, acting in accordance to your values, and then waiting for the thoughts and the heart change to come with that, which is, again, really hard and takes a lot of courage and bravery. Um, so I'm going to stop there, but that, that's the answer to that question. Yeah, that's great. I think you're so right in that it's a very individualized process, but, um, you know, I think you talked about some themes that can come up and some different things that are universal to recovery, like nutritional rehabilitation and um, digging into therapy and underlying themes that might come up, um, which is so important. So I'm curious too, um, for people who can't afford to go to treatment um, or to see a multidisciplinary team, what can recovery look like for them? Yeah, I um, love this question, especially because, you know, the the treatment model in our healthcare system and what's covered and paid for and what's not, you know, it's, it's flawed, right? We live in, mm-hmm. you know, a broken world and um, it's not perfect. And for many people um, 
it's just very unhelpful um, and it's not accessible and it's not attainable. Um, in terms of, you know, if you're really thinking you could benefit from a team, I would definitely try to reach out to as many people as possible in terms of, you know, do you take insurance? You know, if you don't take insurance, could you offer me a super bill and what might my insurance company be willing to reimburse? You know, you can actually, um, you can actually advocate for a single case agreement with your insurance company. So there's different things, you know, that there that can be done. Um, you can always ask for a sliding scale um, with different providers and see just kind of what people are able to, you know, provide in that sense. Um, and if that's just not going to work, you know, that's okay too. I don't, you know, I'm a huge, huge advocate of therapy and nutrition therapy, <laughs> all of that stuff. Like I'm all about it and love it. And I wish it was available to everyone all the time. And the reality is that it's not. Um, but I'm also not one of those people that thinks that healing can only be found in the bounds of XYZ traditional, you know, medical, whatever treatment for eating disorders. So I think, you know, some people, some people find a lot of healing, you know, really connecting with their spiritual self and really exploring some of those values. Others, you know, might read self-help books like Life Without Ed or the Eight Keys book and really gain a lot of knowledge and insight in that way. Um, others might, you know, kind of be dabbling in eating disorder, disorder eating, then um, I've heard this happen quite a few times and then they might get pregnant and then their focus kind of shifts on taking care of their child and nourishing their child. Mm -hmm. And so that can be really healing for a lot of people. Um, so I don't think that it's fair, you know, to say that a person will only recover if they do multidisciplinary <laughs> treatment, you know, cause that's just not, that's not real life and people do recover and they do, you know, get better with a variety of different um, healing modalities and two, you know, if a person is feeling stuck and they are able to seek out that treatment, of course, I would recommend that. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I love that. I think it, as we've said before, looks different for everyone. But um, I think it's really helpful to hear things for people who feel or who aren't able to afford um, the whole dietitian and psychiatrist and therapist and things like that, that there are other um availabilities for healing, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious too, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but um, there's often a lot of debate around the word recovered um, versus recovery. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about um, what the difference is and, and if there's some key uh, terminology changes that are important. Yeah. So, you know, I do fall in the camp of using the term recovered, you know, for eating disorder recovery. OCD is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, but here's why. And I love um, I love this explanation from Carolyn Costin. She's one of um, she's a treatment provider and a leader in the field of eating disorders who does use the term recovered. Um, and she says how clinicians and clients view the disorder and the treatment affects not only the nature of treatment, but oftentimes the actual outcome. You know, if the clients and clinicians believe 
um, that those suffering from the eating disorder can be fully recovered, they have a better chance of achieving it. They're not going to settle for less. And so I, that's kind of the camp that I tend to fall in of like, you know what, why would we settle for less? You know, we're going to, we're going to do everything we can in our power to, um, this thing and you know there's there's split views in the field a growing number of people believe that being recovered is possible and there's some research to back some of that up um and then also you know we have to consider the reality that not everyone recovers you know so what in the world do we do with that um, and that, you know, that's not something that I, you know, have quite figured out. And that's something that I, I wrestle with, you know, people have different access to resources for recovery, people have, you know, different life circumstances um, that might be kind of stacked up against them that might make it more difficult. Um, and so, you know, I, I do believe that full recovery is possible and i also acknowledge you know just the really sobering reality that that not everyone gets there you know and i need that and i don't want that and so that's one of the reasons why i do this work i'm like no <laughs> no we can't settle for that um but i think that's also why it's so important to stay up to date with you know if you're a clinician staying up to date with you know the most evidence-based you know practices and you know there's always new research coming out about you know what's helpful and what what works best for certain people um in certain certain populations and i think it's really important to stay up to date um in that and just always be learning and know that you know as a clinician of course i have knowledge about eating disorders and i don't have all the answers you know and so really collaborating with a client on you know what's what's the most helpful, you know, someone might actually have, you know, a pretty, pretty fair quality of life being in recovery for the rest of their life, you know, and might be kind of trying to manage their eating disorder, um, you know, but is still kind of trying to stay afloat that that is what some what some people do. And, you know, that that makes sense for some people in in the context of their situation and their life story. And, all of that. And other people do claim sort of that full recovery title. Um, so I think, you know, it's really, it's really can be a sensitive subject, really personal one. I'll say no one can define, you know, what feels helpful for a, for a person. So some people it's helpful for them to always just say that they're in recovery because, you know, it keeps them accountable and all of that stuff, even if they look recovered from the outside. So, you know, sometimes that can be really helpful for people. Other people, you know, it's really helpful for them to say, you know, no, you know what? No, like I'm recovered. You know, I've accepted my natural body shape and size. And I know that that might change throughout my lifespan. I no longer have a self-destructive you know, relationship with food or exercise, food has a proper place in my life, it takes up maybe 10% of my time. Um, my weight, you know, doesn't have any sort of bearing on who I am, you know, anything like that. And I'm just, I'm not going to compromise my health or my relationships or my values to try to pursue this eating disorder any longer. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, a roundabout answer. There's no... Like, certain destination that someone has to hit in terms of being 
recovered. You know, it's super gradual. A person just gets stronger and stronger over time. Um, no one else, you know, again, can claim that for you. It's really kind of up to the individual on what what feels right and where they're at in their journey and, you know, what what's most helpful. Um, so, again, this is a really, you know, tricky and nuanced conversation. And I do, again, just want to emphasize that, of course, it's so much easier to recover when you have, you know, when you have financial privilege, you know, when you are in a white thin body and, you know, practitioners easily recognize that this is an eating disorder, you know, so all of those Mm -hmm. factors play in play a role as well. Absolutely. I like that you brought that up too, because I think a lot of people who don't use the term recovered, maybe fall in marginalized bodies where it might be harder mm-hmm. to recover. Um, mm-hmm. But I really do like that holding hope for people um, and how that language kind of changes the way we do recovery and treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such, it's just such a nuanced combo. Um, and I'm open to learning more and hearing more from different people and different perspectives and all of that stuff too. Absolutely. Um I think openness is one of the best qualities of, of anybody that we can just kind of learn more and listen and, mm. and growing, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to someone who's just beginning the recovery and just coming to terms with their diagnosis? I would just say, unfortunately, you're going to have to be in it for the long haul. Um, <laughs> so frustrating. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of times people will come into my office and they'll think that, you know, maybe I'll see her three times and it'll be better. Um, and it, it takes a lot longer than that though. Maybe not the nutrition piece, you know, a lot of times doesn't take as long as a therapy piece, but you know, a lot of times it it takes years to get better. It really truly does. I remember, um, when I first saw my dietitian in my own recovery, Um, I was just getting so frustrated with the process. I was maybe like three months in and she said, you know, recovery from an eating disorder, you know, it takes normally like one to 10 years and sometimes more. And I was like, that was the most unhelpful thing ever. Like, why did you just say that? That sounds horrible. Um, and it was true. Right. So, um, even though I was a little agitated in the moment, I did think about like, oh, okay, you know, this, you know, in the moments where I got frustrated, I reminded myself like, okay, Emily, you know what, this is a process, you know, and I'm, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, that's that. Um, So I would just say, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a process. And in terms of diagnosis, um, You know, I would just really encourage your listeners to just feel empowered to ask questions about that. You know, if they're um, if they're feeling confused or if they're wanting more clarity on why um, why they might meet criteria for a certain diagnosis. I know, you know, many of the therapists or um, psychiatric, you know, mental health providers that I work with will absolutely take the time, you know, and really walk through um the dsm with people and also just talk about how the dsm is flawed in many ways too especially with that whole anorexia definition um (laughs) versus atypical anorexia which we know is just anorexia but actually we don't know because it's still in the dsm so 
Yeah. So I would just, you know, and really encourage your listeners just to, you know, ask questions and then take the time that you need to come to terms with that. It's okay if you disagree. It's okay if you get a second opinion. It's okay if, you know, you're just kind of grieving and you're like, wow, this is hard. I didn't think that my life would look like this. You know, there's, there's grieving in that too. So yeah. Absolutely. Wow. I can't believe all these awesome answers. Um, I'm really grateful. Um, but I have a fun one for you. Um, what's your favorite or not favorite? Because that word, it really throws me off and makes me really stressed, but um, maybe a food that you're loving right now. Ooh, I, ooh. <laughs> so when I share my favorite foods. I really, I have like five that I really like. And no, I don't only eat these foods. Um, but I really, really like, here are my favorites. So I like peanut butter, mac and cheese. It, I don't discriminate. It can be from a box. It can be Velveeta mac and cheese cups. It can be homemade. I make a really good homemade. Um, it can be white cheddar. It can be wh- wherever. I really like most mac and cheese. Um, so peanut butter, mac and cheese, chocolate, and fruit. I feel like I could live off of those food groups. <laughs> Definitely my fave. I love that. I Those are awesome foods, and I really want that mac and cheese recipe. Oh, my gosh. I will so um, – yeah, I can give it to you, and you can also share with your listeners too. Thank you so much. Um, and then my last question for today is a little bit open-ended, um, but I ask it to all my uh, guests on this podcast, but um, how are you becoming – I love this question. I saw, yeah, I just saw this on as I was prepping and I was like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful, profound question because we really are all becoming, you know, we're becoming, um, you know, our truest, um, most healthy selves, especially if you're in sort of a recovery journey um but really just the journey of life you know no one ever arrives <laughs> fully you know even if we want to i often want to but then i'm always reminded that i will never arrive um so i think you know how am i becoming i think i think in this season i'm really um really just leaning into using my voice, which has always been a theme in my my own mental health journey and eating disorder recovery. Um, just really using my voice um, to advocate for my clients, to um, set boundaries in relationships with family and friends, to speak encouragement and life and love, you know, to those folks as well. Um, and just to yeah, just to use my voice in a way that is effective and helpful and not hurtful. And in that same sense, I think I'm really learning to ask more questions and listen more. And um, like what you said earlier, just take things with more of an open hand and not have such a firm grip on my own opinions, right? Because Mm -hmm. sometimes they're wrong, you know? And that's (laughs) Um, so yeah, using my voice, leaning into that, listening more, more, just more wisdom and discernment around just speaking and speech and using my voice in general, I think is the biggest thing. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Wow. I 
am really glad that you could come on today. And I'm really grateful for all that we got to talk about. And you have so much to share, which is awesome. Um, Where can the listeners find you? Yeah, so they can find me on Instagram at Murray Nutrition, M-U-R-R-A-Y, and then Nutrition. And then my website, if they're interested in working with me, so I see clients in Tennessee and then select states around the country, depending on dietitian licensure laws are a little cray. So you can email me and ask (laughs) if you um, think you want to work with me, but you aren't sure about what your licensure laws are. Um, My website is www.murraynutritionco.com. Amazing. I love your website. It's very beautiful. Um, and also your Instagram is fantastic. So definitely give Emily a follow and thanks for coming on today. Oh my gosh, Mimi. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was so fun and was absolutely the highlight of my Monday. Yay.